are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. Spoiler alert. No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. The China Syndrome, which came out in 1979. It was directed by James Bridges. It stars Jane Fonda, Jack Lemmon, Michael Douglas, Scott Brady, James Hampton, James Caron, Daniel Valdez, and Wilfred Brimley. The genre would be nuclear thriller. The China Syndrome. It's about people. People who lie. And people faced with the agony of telling the truth. People like Kimberly Wells, a television reporter paid to smile, not to think. A few words about a veterinarian who makes house calls on sick fish. Or is it aquarium calls? Richard Adams, a cameraman who never learned how to play by the rules. Jack Goodell, an engineer who knows too much to tell the truth. In anything that man ever does, there's some element of risk, right? Well, that's why we have what we call defense in depth. And cares too much to lie. No accident. It will start with a tremor in a nuclear power plant. Where it will end will depend on three people. The closer they get, the more threatening it becomes. The China Syndrome. Today, only a handful of people know what it really means. They're scared. Soon, you will know. Yeah, this movie is actually better than I remember first seeing it on video. Back in the 90s, within a few days of also renting Failsafe, and the day after. Because my younger self was just masochistic, I guess. The nuclear threat was still pretty fresh in my mind from the Cold War. And first seeing this film during the late 90s, which was the peak era of the disaster blockbuster. You know, Armageddon, Titanic, Dante's Peak, Outbreak. As far as I was concerned, there was no scarier threat than a nuclear one. Partially because there was just such an unknown X factor to it. I mean, folks had witnessed, survived, and rebuilt from all natural disasters, after all. And even at the end of Deep Impact, President Morgan Freeman reassured us that... Cities fall. But they are rebuilt. And yes, the actual destruction of a nuclear explosion is enormously terrifying, that mushroom cloud, but it's the years of fallout which always struck me as scarier. It's something you can't much see or even smell, but the mere threat of radiation poisoning can be the stuff of nightmares. And 44 years later after the release of this film, and it came out less than two weeks before the Three Mile Island incident in Pennsylvania, if you could believe it, this nuclear thriller remains a very effective cinematic demonstration of that threat. I don't know. They might have come close to exposing the core. If that's true, then we came very close to the China syndrome. The what? If the core is exposed, for whatever reason, the fuel heats beyond core heat tolerance in a matter of minutes. Nothing can stop it. And it melts right down through the bottom of the plant, theoretically, to China. But of course, as soon as it hits groundwater, it blasts into the atmosphere and sends out clouds of radioactivity. The number of people killed would depend on which way the wind is blowing. Render an area the size of Pennsylvania permanently uninhabitable, not to mention the cancer that would show up later. Off the bat, the movie is rated PG, so you're at least reassured that there will be minimal gore or carnage. Of course, unless you're watching Jaws or Sorcerer from that same era. 
The PG rating was kind of weird. Yeah. Nope. This is a movie that really milks all of the tension you can just from the little things that one would witness in a 1978 nuclear power plant. Pipes rattling a bit seen from a distance via video camera. Watching Jack Lemmon or Wilfred Brimley's increasingly grim mugs amidst white paneling behind soundproof windows. Electronic displays of rectangular white buttons suddenly just lighting up out of sequence. Yeah, where's Buck Murdoch when you need him? That's a very obscure Airplane 2 reference. <laughs> sir, these lights keep blinking out of sequence, sir. I see. What should we do about it, sir? Get them to blink in sequence. You. And of course, the time-tested image of someone walking around machinery wearing an oversized hazmat suit, suddenly noticing something that just does not look right. All the imagery that you need to freak you out is there, along with piercing sound design of ground rumbling, or some awfully unnerving 70s-era panic alarm going off. It all just works. I feel it. And it's helped by a top-flight cast. Jane Fonda as our intrepid reporter, Kimberly Wells. Michael Douglas, all gloriously shaggy as her anti-establishment cameraman, Richard. The wonderful James Karen, who also played Charlie Sheen's boss in previous episode Wall Street, as Kimberly Wells' skeptical manager at the TV station. And just a smorgasbord of crusty authoritarian types, all played to perfection. Peter Donat, James Hampton, he was Teen Wolf's dad, and Richard Hurd, who always seemed like the poor man's Carl Malden to me. But he was great on Seinfeld regardless. Everybody is bringing it. Jane Fonda is especially good in a role that sometimes threatens to drift into cliché. Though really through no fault of hers or even the movies, but half her work scenes just kind of feel ripped from Anchorman. Or maybe you have a message that words cannot express. Oh, that's the kind of stuff I want to see. Yeah, that. Get in tight. Get in tight on the navel. Oh, mercy. Here. Okay, stand by. Coming to two. That is a bellygram, and uh, words cannot express that. That's the kind of stuff I want to see. Really that's well. great. The ratings have gone up half a point since we put her on the show. I know. Our research said she'd do well in the L.A. market. We'll be back. But the standout performance comes from Jack Lemmon, who is just engaging and funny and frustrating as a longtime power plant shift supervisor, Jack Goodell, who's suddenly realizing all of the corners that have been cut through the plant inspection process over the years. Hey, Herman, we got a serious problem. What's the matter now? The pump jet's out. Okay, oh, hell, those were static tests. They're not going to tell us anything. My God, Jack, listen to me, will you? You ran the damn thing up to 110% of rate of speed. Herman, that is not going to tell us what will happen if we ever shut down again. If we scram at full power, I'll tell you something. Any sudden shock to but that that's only in a case of... Damn it, will you listen to me? Take Just easy, will you? Once. I decided to go through the quality assurance reports. I came across some irregularities in the contractor's documentation of the pump support structure, right? So I decided to double-check the welding experts. This is Mr. Sanders. They're identical, Herman. It's the same picture over and over. He does so much with his eyes during some of the more harrowing control room sequences, but I have to admit, I got the biggest kick watching him pull off an action sequence later in the film. I'll get to that in a bit. 
And now the categories. The first category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. As this movie has virtually no score and a minimal soundtrack, this category is actually pretty slim pickings. But at the very least, the movie opens with an elegant opening credit sequence, which takes place along some L.A. freeways following a white Ford Bronco driving somewhere urgently. No, it's not that Ford Bronco, sorry. This was 1978, mind you. Anyways, as the camera traverses along the highway, we hear a relatively catchy yacht rock ditty from singer-producer Stephen Bishop an American singer-songwriter who excelled at crafting musical highlights for various movie soundtracks around this time. His biggest successes were two ballads that he wrote and produced for the 1985 hit White Nights, Separate Lives from Phil Collins and Say You, Say Me from Lionel Richie, the latter of which won the Oscar for Best Original Song that year. He also performed two songs for previous episode Tootsie, including the lovely ballad It Might Be You. Now, the song that he crafted for this movie isn't nearly as memorable as any of those songs, but it still serves its purpose of easing us into this story. The song is called Somewhere in Between. category would be wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. I would just like to give a special shout out to one of the great character actors of the past several decades who left us just a couple of years ago. And this film was actually his first major role in a feature film at the ripe middle age of 45, no less. I'm talking about A. Wilford Brimley, who passed away in August of 2020 due to complications from diabetes which is a disease whose treatment and research he had become a major advocate for. Acting was actually a second career for him, as he was previously a jack-of-all-trades for several decades before becoming an actor. From all accounts, he was a jazz singer, a rodeo rider, a farmer, and even at one point the personal bodyguard to Howard Hughes. But most of us know Brimley from several iconic film and TV appearances after that point, including all of those now-often-quoted commercials for Quaker Oats. He was their official spokesman, I think. Brimley had an unusual career as from the first day that he appeared on the big screen, he was often playing parts significantly older than he was. Seriously, one of his big breakout roles was in 1985's Cocoon as part of an ensemble of senior citizens who start to experience youthful changes once they encounter an alien pod in a nearby pool. Yeah, that's the plot. <laughs> Brimley co-starred with Hume Cronin, who was 73 at the time, and Donna Michi, who was 77. Now, they play his peers. You know how old Brimley was at the time of filming? 49. No joke. <laughs> but that's what was both memorable about Brimley with his distinctive gait and a great baritone drawl, which sounded like he came from New Orleans by way of Utah, which was his birthplace. Here's your Abby, one day walking to the mailbox, anticipating the arrival of her Red Book, her sharper image catalog. What does she find instead? She finds heartache, Mitch. The man just had heft and presence, and the joke about him became that Wilford Brimley was born at the age of 50. 
And it worked for him, as he always excelled at playing wizened old father figures in movies like Brubaker, The Natural, previous episode The Thing, and my personal favorite when he played an intimidating security enforcer in The Firm. I cannot recall seeing Brimley in a single role that I did not enjoy him in. And he is fantastic here, playing Ted Spindler, who works at the power plant just under Lemon's Jack. And he has a moving scene at the very end of this movie, which might actually be the emotional high point of the film. Jack Adele was, was my best friend. I mean, these guys are painting him as some kind of a loony. What, a loony? The sanest man I ever knew in my life. And he had reason to believe this plant was not safe? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he wouldn't have done what he did if there wasn't some to a Jack Adele. He wasn't that kind of guy. I didn't know all the particulars. He, he told me a few things. There's going to be an investigation this time. And the truth will come out and people will know my friend Jack Adele wasn't a lunatic. He was a hero. Jack Adele was a hero. I will always miss the warmth and presence that he brought to most roles. And he certainly has been missed. R.I.P. to a truly unique talent. And now the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. As I alluded to earlier, we actually see 54-year-old Jack Lemmon pull off what might be the only real action sequence that I've ever seen him in. This showcase scene is a car chase sequence late in the film. Lemon seems to actually be driving the car too as he's being chased along cliffside roads and highways by some goons who are apparently sent to kill him. It's probably one of the best examples I can recall of a thinking man's car chase as we see him visibly figuring out the best ways to evade his pursuers on the road. Just thrilling stuff and never distractingly over the top to distract from the rest of the movie. This brings us to the final category, which would be the MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. As good as the cast is, this is really a director's movie. For its entire 122-minute runtime, this film just churns between scenes of basic human drama and white-knuckle tension. Bridges also co-wrote this movie with Mike Gray and T.S. Cook. At the screenplay level, it's a good blend of some disparate elements, including newsroom gender politics, corporate espionage, and the inherent dangers of nuclear power. And even better, this all translates well on screen, way better than it has any right to. I mean, I had mentioned Anchorman earlier, and yes, there are moments with Kimberly on the job which are borderline comic. The fact that these scenes blend tonally with several high-wire moments of nuclear tension later on speaks to just how assured the direction is. Sadly, James Bridges had a relatively short film career as he passed away at the age of 57 in 1993. And I have seen two other films that he directed during the 1980s, both starring John Travolta and of very disparate quality. The Pretty Strong Urban Cowboy and The Laughably Bad Perfect. And if I can spot one commonality among all three of these films, it's this. Each of them is adept at bringing you inside a distinct insular world, whether it be a California fitness club or a Houston set cowboy bar, or yes, a nuclear power plant. There's great attention to detail here with the costumes, facial hair, the side conversations. Everything feels very lived in and casual, which makes sequences when the tension ratchets up all the more effective. And that last 45 minutes, including the car chase, it just approaches Hitchcockian levels of suspense, which is sustained all the way through a somewhat heartbreaking ending. It's kind of amazing just how much of a ride this movie becomes. And for pulling that off with some pretty challenging subject matter, James Bridges is the MVP. Come on, Kimberly, hustle it up. We're on the air. Pete, I met Jack. How many times were you shot? We're on the air. I met Jack Adele two days ago. And I'm convinced that what happened tonight was not the act of a drunk... Or a crazy man. 
Jack Adele was about to present evidence that he believed would show that this plant should be shut down. I'm sorry, I'm not very objective. Let's just hope it doesn't end here. This is Kimberly Wells, live at Channel 3. My rating for the China Syndrome would be four and a half stars out of five. Now, no doubt, there are some political discussions going through this story regarding nuclear power, government regulation, corporate influence over the news media, etc. But it never gets Sorkian, as in Aaron Sorkin. The politics never really stop the movie in its tracks, nor do they detract from what this film still remains as one of the best thrillers of the 1970s. And if you're looking to watch The China Syndrome, it is available to rent or buy on all major platforms. And that ends another radioactive review. Special shout out to my lovely wife, Marlene Gershon, for producing this podcast and to my lovely daughter, Ella Gershon, for assisting in the editing. Please like, subscribe and share the Living for the Cinema podcast and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.